0: Hello, and welcome to The Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Bill. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot to share with you everything that we've learned. And for today's episode, Steve is finally going to be doing some work. (laughs) Whoa. All right, we're going to leave that little wind noise in there. Holy cow, yeah. Because we want to give people the feel of what it's like to be out here on the probably the coldest day in the past week here in western New York. And Steve chose this day to do our recording. We were really hoping we'd have much better (laughs) weather for this episode. (laughs) So today, March 31st. And uh, although it's been spring for a little over a week, we've actually had some spring-like weather here. We are right now, the snow is coming down. We're standing in about, I don't know, two, three inches of snow maybe. And uh, it feels like it's got to be what, 20, 20 degrees maybe?
1: Uh, I think my car said 25. Okay. Yeah.
0: Warmer than last
1: episode. That is But true. colder than it's been lately. Yeah. And where are we today? We are at the Beaver
0: Meadow Autobahn. <laughs> Center yeah okay (laughs) it's tough to remember it all yeah yeah the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center and this is where we did our maple sugaring episodes Mm -hmm. and this is my old stomping grounds this is where I had my first naturalist job long-time listeners will know that and I was actually just here last night for an owl prowl oh how did that go it went very well but I'm actually gonna save talking about that for a little later on okay yeah Yeah. a little (laughs) little teaser for later in the episode sounds good (laughs) so as I was saying I wasn't joking before Uh, the past two episodes steve's been so busy with work at school that uh, i was covering the research for those episodes Mm -hmm. but this one steve said he wanted to do the work so uh, i'm interested to see what you came up with
1: yeah so today we're going to be talking about the american woodcock scolopax minor. Yes. Yeah, and uh, before we get started, I do want to quickly address the most controversial thing I said in the last few episodes. Um, And that is that I mistakenly said the word squanch last episode, (laughs) which doesn't really mean anything aside from like a Rick and Morty meme, I think. There's a character named Squanchy that says Squanch all the time. So I definitely meant to use it in the context of like extinguishing something. Um, And I think I might have combined the word squash quash and quench in some way <laughs> but, i think you used the word squelch in there somewhere too <laughs> i don't know well yeah.
0: <laughs> i like uh, that word
1: yeah and before i forget i was wrong about the hickory from last episode uh, with the conspicuous yellow end uh, buds i was pretty uh, rusty so i was thinking that it might have been caria lacinosa that's the shell bark hickory but after a quick google search it's obviously caria cordiformis, or the bitternut hickory
0: yes and i did put it that into the episode notes uh for the last episode.
1: Oh, good, good. And I wasn't sure if
0: uh, I didn't actually see that in there. Honestly, I, I actually cut out all your guesses at the uh, species name, <laughs> so those weren't even in the last episode. No, no,
1: no. I listened and I said, and I think the specific epithet begins with an L, so oh. I must have been talking about Lassinosa because that's the one okay. that I was thinking of. All right. um, I would have kicked myself a few years ago if I misidentified a hickory, but you know I haven't been in
0: that world for a couple of years, so I don't really feel too bad about getting it wrong. All right, <laughs> all right. I'm going to stop you for just a sec though because yeah. we are getting a little wind noise i apologize for that folks Mm -hmm. so why don't we move to a little more sheltered spot okay all right
1: all right so you know me so let's just get the name woodcock out of the way (laughs) so where did this weird common name come from so it's actually uh from the anglo-saxon um cock it just refers to wood referring to the habitat and then cock referring to chicken uh
0: which is an unrelated species (laughs) and i do have to say i got to jump in yeah so I did not know about this bird until I got the job here. Oh, really? So I started way back in February 1998 here. And just a couple months later, in April, uh, the director at the time, my boss, he said, Okay, you're going to be doing the Friday night woodcock and spring peeper walks. Yeah. And I just looked at him with, you know, complete <laughs> silence like, is this a joke? <laughs> <laughs> it's so good so i just kind of went along with that until he started telling me i'm like oh he's talking about a bird yeah <laughs> so for the uh the juvenile minded like like me among you uh don't worry uh once you hear this word they hear the name of this bird you know several dozen times the uh the tendency to start giggling will go away yeah yeah <laughs> so like i said the
1: name comes from Woodoo cock Which essentially means chicken of the woods. Chicken of the woods, yes. So, Letiperus can suck it. What's that? Well, you mean you don't know Mushroom General right off the top of your head?
0: <laughs> chicken of oh, the Woods. Chicken yeah. of the Woods Mushroom. Yeah, yes. yeah.
1: it's the bright orange shelf fungus that people like to eat. Yeah. Maybe it tastes like chicken? I
0: have no idea. No, I've eaten it before. It doesn't taste like chicken. No, okay, no. yeah. Oh,
1: <laughs> I should say, to me, it
0: doesn't taste like
1: chicken. Sure, sure. Yeah. But in all seriousness, I'm actually fine with the mushroom taking this one, because uh, chickens are in the pheasant family. Phasianidae, which are galliforms, and woodcocks are in the sandpiper family. Scolo packaday uh, which are charadria forms so they're not even
0: close they don't even have the same general body shape that's true yeah so yeah. Um, these are messed up birds yeah. <laughs> they're a shore bird that doesn't live at the shore exactly yeah. yeah
1: but you know but at least they're both birds but I'm weird about names so I don't mind someone calling a mushroom by a bird's name but I'm not as happy about someone calling a bird by another unrelated bird's name um, but I'll keep calling the woodcock woodcock since no one uses the binomial nomenclature to refer to birds <laughs> and you, you know it's other name um tell me what do you
0: think it is the timber doodle yeah i've heard that do you do you know why that is a thing because people didn't like to say woodcock oh no way (laughs) seriously (laughs) no like is doodle
1: (laughs) (laughs) and is timber wood
0: i have no i never made that connection before i literally just made it now <laughs>
1: like i did it never crossed my mind until this moment i was even going to bring up timber doodle later and just say i didn't know where
0: the name comes from so you, you have an even more juvenile mind than mine So woodcock timber doodle <laughs> uh, wow. or the
1: the tree wang <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's a new one.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. So also worth mentioning, because I just learned it myself, Cock of the Woods is another name for the pileated
0: woodpecker. Oh, I never heard that.
1: Yeah, I guess that red crest that it has um, resembles a cock's comb. Sure. And again, referring to the habitat, yeah, the wood I could buy yeah. that. Um, so this is the last common name, I promise, Bill. <laughs> so you like dogs. I know that because yeah. you recently got a dog. Um, and, uh, and I know you pay attention. So can you guess... Where the name Cocker Spaniel comes from. Something to do with chickens? Did they herd chickens or something? Well, I'll give you a clue. It's not Latin for dog breed with the highest number of health concerns, (laughs) even though that might be true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those pure breeds.
1: Yeah, so (laughs) what it is is that (laughs) apparently uh, Cocker Spaniels were bred... Uh, to flush out game birds,
0: such as the woodcock. So Ah. Cocker Spaniel actually refers to the woodcock. And that makes sense, because these are a a smaller-sized bird, yeah, and they're kind of in small, tight spaces, and it would make sense you'd need a smaller dog to get in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, man, now that I realize that you didn't even know what a woodcock was in 1998, (laughs) well, I think I know the answer to this question then. Have you ever had a
0: woodcock? eating it yeah it is no, a game bird right so, it is a yeah i yeah. know people hunt them but no i never had how many years i'm not have you a monster <laughs> <laughs> usually i say stuff like that no no i'm just kidding but how many years now have, has it been oh uh, well vegetarian since 96 okay. and then vegan i don't know 10 12 years something
1: oh like. so even before you heard of one you were a vegetarian so you yes. wouldn't have
0: had it anyway i wouldn't have had it yet. yeah
1: yeah got it got it all right so let's just move on to the general and specific epithets so, scolopax is just Greek for the woodcock, which is pretty boring. It's just oh. the, the word for that, or the name for that bird. Um, but previously, it was in the genus Philohela, which, according to author Diana Wells, means bog-loving. But to me, uh, philohela sounds more like sun-loving, but I don't know Latin all that well, so yeah, it must mean bog. I that mean, wouldn't
0: make sense, because they come out to do their thing when the sun's not even out, so...
1: Yeah, we'll, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. So the species name is minor, um, so that's just Latin for smaller. And this is in comparison to the Eurasian woodcock, Scolopax rustica, uh, which just means country dweller.
0: Yeah, I was wondering why that they just threw the minor in there. I didn't realize there was a European species too. Yeah,
1: so it's not something that we see around here, but it's just, you know, All right. the namers of this species. Yeah. were thinking of the closer. That was days. their point of reference. Yeah, right, yeah. right. All right, so I mentioned this before, but the woodcock is part of the scolopacidae, that's the sandpiper family. Um, This family includes most of the North American shorebirds and most of the shorebird identification challenges. But don't worry, as Bill said, the woodcock is unlikely to be confused with the other shorebirds or even to be seen with them. (laughs) So there's nothing really to worry about there. All right, so now actually uh, let's move on to the
0: woodcock's biology. All right, but let's walk a little bit more because we stopped. and
1: Yeah, I'm even shaking a tiny bit.
0: It's still windy.
1: (laughs) So virtually everywhere I look, this bird is described as chunky. Yeah! <laughs> Which I, It's like my favorite aspect of that description. Um, it's definitely not the most important, but I think it's the best. <laughs> so the major points for this bird is that it's bigger than a sparrow and smaller than a crow, so it's roughly robin-sized or even quail-sized. It's up to a foot long. Um, It has large, protruding eyes positioned far back on its head, so it looks really goofy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it also has a large head and a long bill, which is about two times the length of the head, which looks even longer since it's basically (laughs) neckless.
0: And are are you going to get into why its eyes are so far set back? Oh, yeah, I'll get to it. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And its short legs and short tail uh, definitely help the bill stand out even more. And lastly, it's really well camouflaged, often referred to as being dead leaf colored with light browns, blacks, buffs and gray brown tones. Um, But uh, an interesting note on the Woodcock's goofy head, like Bill was getting (laughs) to, um, their brain is actually tilted so far back in the skull that it's almost upside down. Um, But when their bill is in the ground probing for worms, the brain and the eyes are almost positioned as if it's just normally looking outward and upward (laughs) yeah
0: yeah (laughs) this is a messed up bird but in a very cool way yeah yeah
1: so while this is a pretty common species their nocturnal habit and cryptic coloring makes them difficult to stumble across unless you know where to find them during their more crepuscular courtship display but more on that later
0: and for the listener that may not know what does crepuscular mean
1: yeah it's just that time of day where the sun is going down so twilight
0: right right. yeah or when the sun is coming Coming up up. (laughs) yeah you're right you're right (laughs) so you can show that off to your friends folks yeah yeah yeah.
1: whip it out at parties yeah all right that was a weird way to say that (laughs) all right so as i said earlier the woodcock isn't easily confused with many other birds but it is relatively similar to the wilson snipe and the long and short billed dowitchers uh which are in the same family um but the woodcock is chunkier than both of them and it has more rounded wings in flight than the wilson snipe
0: i also believe correct me if I'm, I'm stepping on your toes, no. uh, but don't the, the striping on the head, doesn't it go a different direction between the snipe and the woodcock?
1: I think you're right. The woodcocks are, would you consider those like lateral? They don't go front
0: to back. They go side to side. Right. But the snipe is the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure.
1: Yeah. I think so. I think so. So another difference with the snipe and the woodcock is that when you're wandering around a woodland swamp and flush a woodcock, apparently that chunky little bird will take off in a straight path producing whistling sound with its rounded wings and i love the language in some field guides i can't remember which one i poached this from but it says the woodcock permits close approach then explodes with whistling wings i'm nice. <laughs> like they can be flowery
0: it's a non-academic <laughs> type of thing so and we'll throw yeah. the the sound in above the uh, the talk here oh yeah good yeah. thinking
1: and, uh, and that's compared to the slimmer, uh, pointed wing snipe, which takes off in a zigzag pattern, making them pretty uh, difficult uh, in terms of a game bird to shoot. And uh, people used to hunt them with net guns, actually, uh, really? until accurate enough guns came out where they can shoot them outright.
0: Yeah. I never knew net guns were an actual thing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> apparently for snipe. <laughs> yeah.
0: and, we, and we should say, for the listeners out there who might be scratching their heads, snipes are a real bird.
1: Yes, and I should mention that the Snipe and the Woodcock are the only two game birds in the Sandpiper family. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, So, Bill, uh, this is another little side shoot because that's what I do. I always go off on these tangents. What's another name for a sharpshooter in the military? A sniper? Yes. And apparent so apparently, by the 18th century, the word sniper was being used by some English officers serving in India, which was under British rule until 1947, and when they wrote home, they would refer to a day of rough shooting as going out sniping. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess it took a lot of skill to shoot a snipe with a flintlock gun, but sharpshooters really weren't called snipers until the early 20th century in World War I. Oh. Yeah.
0: But it, was- it has... Yeah, we got Goose. some Canada geese flying over there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so the Audubon Field Guide and Eastman um, both claim that woodcocks also take off in that zigzag pattern, like the Wilson snipe, but it seems like there's a lot of inconsistencies between those type of like, non-academic sources. So mm-hmm. I didn't want to say for sure that it did, but the Wilson snipe definitely does. The Woodcock might <laughs> and I gotta, the zigzag pattern.
0: I got to jump in here because you mentioned uh, Eastman. Yes. And longtime listeners will know we're referring to John Eastman, whose books we mentioned many times on the podcast. Now, I don't know if you saw it. Someone sent us an email or made a comment about Mm. how his books, most of them are out of print. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. So especially his, you know, Book of Forest and Thicket and uh, Swamp and Bog, you can get digital versions through Amazon. But actual physical copies, usually you have to buy them used and they're not cheap.
1: Oh, I could definitely see it not being cheap. Every time, like, a cool naturalist book goes out of print, there was, like, a mushroom one a few years ago that went, and the price went up to, like, over $150. It was crazy. It was so
0: disappointing to find that out, because, man, those books are good.
1: Yeah, they're great. I did read a review in... Do you remember how sometimes, like, nature will have, like, notes or something? It's not, like, official articles, but it's, you know, just, like, part of their their journal. Yeah. Um, There was a review of Eastman's book. And
0: one of his books.
1: Yeah. One of Eastman's books. And it was the biggest complaint on it was that they said they really liked it. But the biggest complaint was that it seems like he's sourcing primary literature, but he never gives a word cited. And that's (laughs) always been our complaint, too. Yeah. And sometimes when we're doing research for a particular topic, we definitely must come across the same sources that Eastman had. Right. But... He didn't cite them. And that's why we always cite our sources, just so people can find the things we're actually talking about.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And one more thing about him, though, is when I started looking into his books after we got that email, I can't find anything on him online, like any background information or where if he's attached to a university or what yeah so if anybody out there has information that could lead us to get in touch with him because man he would be good to interview for a uh, a bonus episode
1: i mean he's probably
0: listening (laughs) (laughs) i hope so if you are john eastman we love you
1: (laughs) i have one hero (laughs) (laughs) nice all right so In terms of their habits, uh, like I said, woodcocks are nocturnal. They hide in dense vegetation during the day, um, and they're most active during dusk, um, or like we said, the uh, crepuscular hours. Um, And this is why we're recording this episode later in the day than usual, because we're hoping that we can stumble across one. Right. But we didn't plan on it being (laughs) so snowy. Right. um, Though I, I have definitely read accounts where woodcocks are at least rocking on snow, um so maybe they'll be doing their display flights too.
0: And I did talk uh to our friend Rich. He's been on the podcast before. I actually drove by his house on the way here tonight. Yeah. He was out on his front porch. I stopped and uh, we talked for a few minutes and he said the woodcocks have been out oh. in the field behind his house and he said he would not be surprised if they were out this evening. So. Oh, well. I'm here's hoping. For hoping. Yeah. yeah.
1: Let's uh ooh maybe we can summon up some black magic by crossing our fingers
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm doing it right now yeah
1: (laughs) so i want to back up slightly and give a general overview of the woodcock's range and i'm just doing this so you'll know if you can find this bird in your neck of the woods Um, so they're found all year uh, and during the winter throughout most of the southeastern u.s and up the east coast up to massachusetts so you won't really find them north of Arkansas or North Carolina unless you live closer to the East Coast. And only during the winter, their range extends what little it can to the southern borders of Florida and Louisiana and eastern portions of Texas. Um, in terms of the breeding season, woodcocks migrate solitarily at night, uh, and their spring migration happens uh, pretty early compared with other species, and some males will even start migrating north during January in warm years. Whoa. Yeah. So... Um, during the breeding season, they're basically found throughout the entire eastern U.S. and uh, up into southeastern Canada. Um, during the spring and summer, males do their courtship sky dances, which we'll get into later. Um, they'll mate and raise young, and then they'll return to their wintering grounds in the fall, uh, again, migrating at night. Okay. So in terms of the preferred habitats, so now that you know if they're in your state or not, now you can see where exactly in your state to look for them so um woodcocks uh like young shrubby deciduous forests they like forest edges old fields and wetlands all throughout the eastern uh states
0: all the places they're going to find worms.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah their
0: preferred food.
1: And yeah, and, and they definitely like moist soils because it's easier to dig around for worms in that type of soil.
0: When you were describing these guys, did you talk about how long their bill is?
1: I said it was about twice as long as their head yeah. and their head's already pretty big. So it's, this that's long really, probing bill. Yeah. That's like an outstanding feature of the Woodcock is it, their long bill.
0: I did read somewhere, maybe you, you read about this, but that they can move just the tip of of their bill?
1: I'll get into it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Stepping on my toes, Bill. You know too much. <laughs> it's been a while. Trusty. All right. So, this is where I'm going to get into some of the other names. So, people also call the Woodcock Timberdoodle, like Bill said, hokum Poke, and Bog Sucker. So, I tried to figure out the Hoku.
0: Hoku Poke? Hoku Poke. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's Hoku Poke. I threw an extra M in there by mistake the first time, but Hoku Poke. But at this point, I'm ready to accept that someone on Wikipedia just made that one up. I can't find (laughs) it anywhere, but it sounds so weird that I wanted to include it. Um, But I like to think that the Bog Sucker name (laughs) comes from the fact that Uh, it's a combination that sometimes it lives near bogs and the fact that it eats worms by sticking its long bill into the soil. So what I'm picturing is a chunky little bird trying to suck up all the water out of a wetland with a straw. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Can you
0: picture that? I can. That's perfect.
1: Yeah. That may or may not be where the name comes from, but I don't even want to fact check it because I really like that interpretation. That's good. So Eastman also says that people nicknamed it little brown ghost. Specifically because of how hard it is to see during its yes. flights, its, it's a display flights that we'll talk about. Um, but I didn't really see that anywhere else. Eastman finds a lot of weird <laughs> shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does.
1: All right, so before we get into the sky dance and mating and rocking and worm hunting... I think we should take a quick break for our sponsor.
0: Yeah, so we wanted to let everyone know that this episode is sponsored by Gumleaf USA. This com- company offers Wellington-style natural rubber boots for men and women. They're perfect for birding, for herping, for hunting, uh, for farm work, or just standing on the sidelines of the soccer field as parents scream at their kids. Uh, there's, they have a factory in Europe, and they've been making these rubber boots for over 80 years. And they are well-designed boots with all the features found in boots that are normally twice their cost. Uh, we've been able to test out a pair of these boots, and I have to say that I love them. They're fantastic. Steve? I like them, too, though Bill's been hogging them a lot lately. So. <laughs> I have. It's true. They're made from 85% natural rubber, which is why they can flex over 1 million times without a crack. Whoa. Where'd you get that from? <laughs> now that was on their website, and I have to say they did not cite their source. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll hire you to flex it a million times and see. But competitive brands do use between 25 and 50% rubber mixed with plastics and synthetics. So you could say it's likely that if you buy a pair of less expensive boots, you would probably have to replace those well before your gum leaf boots wear out. Yeah. And as I've mentioned on previous episodes, these boots have a lot of bells and whistles. They have a, a stitched neoprene cushion liner with a Vibram sole they have comfort, durability, and quality, then that's the hallmark of Gumleaf USA boots. Now, I do have to say last night when I was here at Beaver Meadow for the Owl Prowl, it was pouring for almost the entire owl prowl. Oh, yeah, that's um, why I didn't go. I'm kind of <laughs> recovering from a throat thing right now. and I was like, nope. I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure if, if we were going to get the owls, but when I talked to uh, Tom, the naturalist here, he said, no, we're still going out. I think they might be around. And and you're also thinking salamanders, too. Right. We yeah. were hoping to catch some salamanders, but the pond here, as you can see, is is mostly still frozen. Yeah. But uh, I was able to step out a little bit from the shore and i have to say people were saying wow i actually did have someone say hey where'd you get those boots yeah nice <laughs> <laughs> i almost wanted to say thank you because we can use that <laughs> yeah but over the course of this two-hour hike we were going through the mud it was raining my feet stayed warm and cozy dry nice so they, they really are great boots and i'm going to use the tagline from Gumleaf here focus on your activity and not on your feet Oh, yeah, I like it. Folks, go check out Gumleaf USA, and what's your website? Gumleafusa.com. Okay, Steve, you want to walk a little bit and we'll talk about the mating? Yeah, sure. All right,
1: right, so on to the most conspicuous thing that the woodcock does.
0: (laughs) I think this is probably the reason they're the most well-known.
1: Yeah, for sure, yeah. So they begin breeding in early spring, uh, as early as March here in New York, but the males can start displaying as early as December in their southern breeding range is December? December. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so the display begins with the male making loud nasal buzzy zent or peent vocalizations um, over and over again about every two seconds while they're on the ground. Uh, and it almost sounds like an insect more than a bird. Um, it also sounds a little bit like a
0: nighthawk call too. It does. It sounds very similar. I'd say a good description is it almost sounds like you're quickly running your fingers along a comb.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, And we'll play it for you now, uh, since they're not calling currently. (laughs) Um, But then they take flight, and they make extended high-pitched twittering and chipping sounds. So this is called the sky dance, and it's done by the males to attract females. So during the courtship, the male performs a circling upward flight, followed by a rapid drop over their breeding grounds. So... This entire flight is accompanied by those twittering sounds that I mentioned earlier. And it's easy to think that these sounds are vocalizations. Right. But they're not. They only vocalize at the peak of the flight, right? Yes. And these twittering sounds are actually made by air passing through the male's outer primaries on their wings.
0: Yeah, the primaries are, like, sickle-shaped. Yeah. And and they make this sound—the wind makes the sound going through them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as Bill said, when the bird reaches the peak of its climb, it produces this climactic, bubbly vocalization for as long as 15 seconds as it zigzags back to the ground like a falling leaf. But those are the only actual notes um, produced by its syrinx. So as a side note, the twitters uh, that are made by the wings, um, I think it sounds a little bit like a car from the Jetsons. If anyone's uh, old enough to know that cartoon. (laughs) Oh, here comes George Jetson now. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) So this type of song, in quotes here, um, is produced by air passing over the feathers um, and is found in other birds as well. So just in North America, um, these include but are not necessarily limited to the annas and black-chinned hummingbirds. Those are two birds that I actually saw when I was uh, living in Utah. Um, we, we're banding hummingbirds out there, and their wing um,
0: their wings make a whistling sound.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't it, know that. It's, it's uh, kind of like a, I think it's a courtship thing as well. Okay. The common night hawk also produces wing noises. Yeah. Um, the ruffed grouse—that's the drumming. Oh, okay. Um, morning doves, um, and rock doves. Though so the rock doves only make the noise by quickly clapping their wings together uh, during takeoff, uh, and morning doves can do this as well as their whistly wing flight.
0: Okay. Yeah. Sh- have you ever
1: heard that with the morning dove where oh yeah, yeah you'll flush one and it'll be like a whistly wing like whir i gotta yeah. say
0: i always thought that was a vocalization i never realized it was their wings yeah yeah <laughs> did you before researching I, this
1: I, I remember reading about it somewhere okay yeah maybe eastman or something i don't know
0: i do want to say comparing to the nighthawk the woodcock always makes its pint from the ground whereas the woodcock makes its pint in the air
1: yeah i don't think i've ever seen uh wait do you say Nighthawk? Yeah. Always in the air? Okay. I don't think I've ever seen a Nighthawk not in the air, though.
0: Right. <laughs> but if, if you hear the sound in the air... <laughs> They're so
1: hard to find. Right. Uh, I think one time I might have seen one perched somewhere up in a tree. Yeah. But I'm also not convinced that it wasn't just a broken piece of branch or something. <laughs> They're so well camouflaged. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. So even though Woodcocks are typically solitary, sometimes a number of males will be in the same areas... Doing competitive displays for females over the same breeding grounds. So, this is also known as a lek, and you'll see this in a number of other species all throughout the animal kingdom. Grouse. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, like other birds, such as the sage grouse, um, but you'll see it in some mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and even fish and insects, like the orchid bee and the black swallowtail butterfly.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I've never, I guess, heard of them or considered them as leks, but that makes perfect sense. And I just wanna give the audience kind of a, a visual. Uh, a, a mental picture of, of what this is like so here at beaver meadow we're not there yet but we're heading up to an area called the arboretum where they have a lot of uh, native tree species planted but uh, up on the hillside overlooking the arboretum is a, a big open area uh, they use it mostly as a meadow that they let grow wild they mow it about every four or five years and especially in those years after it's mowed uh, we get woodcock performing here yeah, and, I
1: think we went with your family last year yeah yeah,
0: yeah. so Think of, you know, a large open area, uh, usually with surrounded by uh, woods with some shrubs in that edge habitat, and that's where the woodcock are going to be hanging out during the day. And then during the spring, when it's time for the males to do their displays, they will emerge um, either a little bit after sunset or a little bit before twilight. So I forget what the candle power is. There's a certain level of light, and I'll put that into the, the notes. Yeah, it's low. Yeah. So they'll come out start their painting and the females will watch from the sidelines <laughs> seeing if they like what they see but when the males paint at a certain point they're going to fly up into the air and think of uh, like a tornado shape or an inverted cone shape yeah and as they spiral up into the air uh, i can't remember exactly how high they go like 100 it's 200 about, feet No, i
1: think it's about 400 feet okay
0: yeah it's, it's high so high that it's hard to see them
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially with the dark sky. It's, and, it's so hard. Like, the juxtaposition between them and the sky, there's not much. Right. That's tough.
0: And when they reach the top of that flight, the top of the cone is really wide. So the spiral starts at the ground, but then as you gain elevation, the spiral gets very, very wide. And you know they reach the top of that flight when you hear that beep, 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 that... that Yeah, that bubbly... That bubbly know. call. And then they zigzag back down to the ground. hmm And... I do have to say that, you know, all those walks that I led here, they they used to have them every Friday night during April here at Beaver Meadow. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they would extend into May. So we'd go out, look for woodcock around a little bit after dusk, and then we would head down to the ponds to look for spring peepers. And I did this, you know, five, six years. Uh, So we did it a lot. And in all those times, all those walks, you know, we saw woodcock, I'd say probably 50, 75% of the time, but the woodcocks never got real close uh sometimes we could see them against the sky uh, but it was always hard to see because they're so well camouflaged they're relatively small mm-hmm. but one time we led a trip up to algonquin provincial park where we recorded our spruce grass episode and we took people to see woodcock there and we had a woodcock land probably five feet away from the group wow and most of the group there had never seen woodcock before. <laughs> I was going out of my mind, and I was trying to get these people to appreciate this never happens. Yeah, right. You folks need to really be grateful that this bird is, is being so permissive right now.
1: Typically, if you get between, let's say, 5 and 10 feet of a woodcock, that's you usually won't see it until you're about five or you know five or six feet away and right. then it'll flush right and you'll never know that you were close to the woodcock at all <laughs> yeah yeah so to see one land right in front of you that would be amazing
0: <laughs> and, and you know now that i'm relating this story I'm, I'm wondering if my memory is is making it more exciting it was actually about 50 feet away, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but it was close yeah bill i was there
1: it was, we saw a picture of a woodcock <laughs>
0: All right, so speaking of that, it is it is getting starting to get dark. Yeah. Uh, the sun has set, so why don't we walk, and you can keep talking. Yeah, sure. All right.
1: All right, so the male woodcock, um, they mate with multiple partners, and they don't really offer any parental care. Um, the only source that said the male also incubated and led chicks to food, was the Smithsonian Field Guide to Birds. Um, Smithsonian. Which, it's a Smithsonian. They're, they're usually pretty, uh, you know, good. But I didn't see it anywhere else. Everywhere else just said that they don't offer parental care. So right. I just wanted to mention that in case, who knows, maybe a listener knows a little bit more than us. Um, so the female makes a nest in a shallow depression, uh, in leaf and twig litter, um, typically uh, in young upland woods, um, and they typically lay about four eggs. After hatching, the female broods the nestlings until they dry off, but they leave the nest just a few hours after hatching, and they're probing for their own food three to four
0: days later. Whoa. Yeah, they're quick. So, okay, we're testing my naturalist memory here. Sure. Is that precocial? Oh man, I think you're <laughs> right. There's pre- precocial and ultrical, right?
1: Yeah, altricial. Or, procre- <laughs> I
0: can't pronounce that Something like it. that. All right, yeah. we'll, we'll put that in the episode notes. Sure, sure.
1: So, and I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, during the early stages of incubation, the female will readily abandon the nest if she's disturbed, but in later stages of incubation, the female may flush from the nest and feign an injury to uh, oh. distract the intruder, which like, reminded me a lot of the... Killdeer. Yeah, yeah, so the female killdeer will do the same thing. Um, and they're actually... It's a member of a different family of birds, the Charadriidae, the plover family, but they're also ground nesters, so they have that in common at least.
0: I want to believe that that is some kind of mimicry going on because they they nest I think if memory serves around the same time so oh, I, <laughs> huh. I didn't even think about maybe a
1: mimicry but who knows <laughs> yeah. so um, about a month after hatching the young are completely independent mainly leaving their siblings to be solitary but it's not uncommon for small groups of two to four to stick together um, and I've never seen it myself but I read that while physical contact between individuals is rare sometimes they do tug on each other's bills Which would be really cool to see. It's not too important, but I just wanted to mention it. That, like, if you ever see some together, just watch them. Get your bins out and just watch them. To see if they tug on each other. Yeah, because I would love to see some type of footage of that. Yeah, Or I should say, not your bins. Get your camera out. All right. So, as I mentioned earlier, the woodcocks are nocturnal. Um, So, it mainly feeds at night and during uh, crepuscular hours. Um, And they mostly eat earthworms during that time. So the tip of their long bill, this is what Bill was talking about, is flexible. It has like a flexible upper mandible. Yeah. And it's sensitive enough uh, for the woodcocks uh, to actually detect, capture, and extract worms and insect
0: larvae um, that touch it in the soil without really needing to open the bill itself. Right. So they can catch the worms without having to open their mouth.
1: Yeah. And there's like a type of like a lab tool that does that.
0: You know what I'm talking about? I do. like Almost like forceps.
1: Yeah, it's like a type of forcep that also is able to do that. Yeah. And I, I, I read someone comparing it to that. <laughs> um, so they'll also eat insects, spiders, snails, and other invertebrates. But they'll also eat um, seeds from grasses, sedges, smart weeds, roses, uh, like blackberries, and alders, among others. Oh. Uh, but worms are their primary food. And I read one place that it's like 90% of their diet. Okay. Yeah. All right, so speaking of earthworms, in my typical style, I'm going to briefly sidetrack here. So I read a short paper looking at the effects of tilling practices on earthworm abundance in agricultural fields in eastern North Carolina. They specifically chose areas where woodcocks were roosting, and apparently fields where there was conventionally tilled soil, 99% of the earthworms consumed by woodcock were Aporactodia, that's a non-native, or Diplocardia, and that's a native species. So 99% of earthworm species were just from those two genera. Um, But in no-till fields, the researchers collected over 2,100 earthworms and identified 13 different species, only about 80% being in either of those genera, um, Aporectia or Diplocardia. Um but still in terms of the actual numbers, over two thirds were just a single species, Aporactodia trapezoides, and that's a European invasive species of earthworm. So still it's most of their
0: foods coming from a single species and it's
1: it's not even a native
0: species. <laughs> yeah, so that makes me wonder. I'd like to find out about the evolutionary history of woodcock and where were they, you know, around the last ice age
1: and are earthworms becoming more abundant with invasive species or is the general number staying the same but the species richness is decreasing that's what i'm wow. wondering so is it still getting just as much food in just as many places or is it expanding or it's would it be? Re-
0: would we ever do a, an earthworm episode?
1: Well, I was about to say, I'm actually sick of being ignorant when it comes to earthworms, so we should really do an episode on earthworms in the future. That yeah. would be incredible.
0: Has anyone ever said that? I'm sick of being ignorant about earthworms.
1: Yeah, so, so, um, so hopefully in that episode, I won't struggle so much with aparectodia or diplocardia <laughs> pronouncing these earthworm genera because nah. I've never tried to pronounce them in my life because I've never thought about earthworms all that much. Uh, So, regardless, it seems that woodcock have a greater worm meal species diversity in their overwintering sites where farmers are practicing no-till agriculture. Um, And nearly all farmers have switched uh, to that in soybean fields in that area. So, soybeans tend to be no-till.
0: And what area was this? Uh,
1: North Carolina. Okay. All right. So, back to the woodcocks. So, um, I want to touch on another weird thing that woodcocks do. It's called rocking Have you heard of this? I have not. Yeah, so while walking, woodcocks will sometimes shift their bodies up and down and forward to back with each step um, while keeping their heads steady. So it's kind of like kind of a cool movement. I think I've seen YouTube videos where people put them to music, (laughs) and uh, it kind of reminds me of that diagnostic tail bob that the spotted sandpiper does while it's walking around wetlands. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like that, but instead of the tail bobbing up and down,
0: it's the whole body doing this, like, kind of rhythmic dance as it walks. So, Is it doing this during breeding or just all the time?
1: I think it does it all the time. Okay. Um, and many people have thought that this motion was used to disturb earthworms into moving, and the woodcock was somehow able to hear or feel that movement, and it would help them like pinpoint where to probe for food. Okay. Now, does that sound like a stretch. <laughs> <laughs>
0: pseudoscience.
1: Yeah, well, you know even Eastman mentions it. But and he doesn't say that like this is a proven fact, but he does <laughs> mention it and many field guides actually mention this as well.
0: Does this have anything to do with I remember hearing somewhere that Woodcocks will stamp on the ground to mimic the patter of rainfall and draw earthworms out. It's the same thing. Okay. So
1: um, I actually read a 2016 paper out of the Northeastern Naturalist by Bern Heinrich, another Whoa. one of our favorite authors. Okay. And he mentions this. He actually he actually shows that um, the idea that, um, that it's for worm hunting yeah. um, was actually only proposed by a few observations and some confident guesses. But it's not really... <laughs> backed up by any real scientific vigor okay yeah so it's a good story yeah right so um it's also worth mentioning that they will do this activity on days where the ground is frozen and earthworms really wouldn't be moving near the soil surface
0: yeah but birds are kind of
1: stupid yeah i know they're (laughs) stupid um but (laughs) so um so bern heinrich mentions um, there's a few things that need to be proven before we accept this worm hunting hypothesis. So do woodcocks do it while we're not watching them? Right. You know, because most time they're, when people are looking, that's when you notice it. That's how we learn things <laughs> is by looking at it. But... There's a bias there, you know? And the
0: act of observation. Right. So,
1: um, And also, can this little 6 to 8-ounce bird cause significant vibrations (laughs) in the soil by rocking like that? How far is that going? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, Do worms move in response to the woodcock steps? Is there even worms there? Can the woodcock sense the worm's movements? (laughs) Can they locate the worms from those movements? Um, So there are other hypotheses, though, uh, for this rocking motion. So this includes mimicry of blowing leaves. Even though they'll do it on calm days too, where it's okay. not so windy. Um, another one is that it may reduce detection by "quote unquote" minimizing shadows. Um, even though they'll do it on overcast days as well, where they might not cast shadows. Okay. I don't even know what the minimizing shadows. Oh, no, I don't know she's gonna say what. I, I wrote it in quotes in my in my notes just so I remember and make fun of it. Somebody's reaching. So, <laughs> and. And then that paper from Bern Heinrich, he actually proposes that it's an advertisement of unprofitability. So in other words, Heinrich thinks that it might be the woodcock sensing a mild potential threat and saying, I see you and you can't catch me. I don't want to fly off and hide. So please leave me the f*** alone. (laughs) That's what Heinrich thinks is happening. I love
0: Bern Heinrich.
1: (laughs) If it was a big enough threat, they would probably just fly away. But if it's like a mild threat, maybe not. So, there's a few reasons for this thinking. So, it's conspicuous. The rocking ruins their camouflage. Uh, Sometimes the woodcocks will also flare their tails, um, prominently flashing white feathers up into the sides. This is known as a tail flare alarm.
0: Yeah, Um, because I got to say, like, one of the rules of camouflage is you stand still and let your camouflage do its work.
1: And that's why they're so hard to find during the day, because they're usually still during the day, and they really blend in really well. But if they're rocking, they're ruining that. Um, I love the
0: idea that... They bob and rock, and they're like, oh, yeah, you think you can take this? You think you can take this?
1: (laughs) The way you're doing that seems, I think, in the way sometimes you put it wrong. (laughs) And don't say that ever again. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) But uh, another thing I want to mention is that they do it when they're being followed or when humans are around filming them. Um, They'll also walk and rock as they're moving away from you, and then when you stop, oftentimes they'll stop, kind of like how a killdeer does it. Yeah? Yeah. Um, uh, so why would they continue to hunt for worms while they're being stalked? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like if they're rocking as they're walking away from you, why would they do that? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so it definitely seems like they're responding to some type of threat rather, uh, rather than worm hunting. Um, so this, uh, you know, not having to fly away, like giving this signal, would certainly save the woodcock energy. You know, it might not have to fly off or deal with being chased. Um, It would also make some sense that they would do it in foraging areas because, you know, they would probably be reluctant to fly away from those areas if they didn't need to because they're, you know, good eating. Sure. And, of course, this hasn't been tested, um, but there's so many observations that are inconsistent with the worm hunting hypothesis that it's definitely worth looking into this and trying to study this on a more, like, specific level.
0: There's somebody's Ph.D. study out there. Yeah, exactly.
1: And and Heinrich only wrote this in 2016 uh, where he's suggesting this hypothesis, so there hasn't been that much time for people to really tackle it.
0: All right, hang on a sec. Folks, we're going to be quiet for just a second. You hear that? Do you think that's it? No, I think that's a spring peeper. Oh, it is. That's what I think. <laughs> it's one sad cold spring peeper saying, "Ladies, <laughs> <laughs> anybody out there?" I work out. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> folks? Like right now we're standing in some uh brushy woods. Everything is covered in snow. Oh,
1: yeah we so had to stop a couple times because there was just gusts of snow just like <laughs> taking us out.
0: And last night when I was here, the peepers were in full force. It was about 50, 55 degrees when we started the hike at 730. By the end of the hike at, uh, at 930, temperature had dropped to 10, 15 degrees. Yeah. So, all right, I just wanted to point out that peeper. Sorry to cut you off.
1: No, not a problem. So now I kind of just want to finish up talking about the woodcock uh, by bringing up their current status. Um, And now that we know a little bit about this chunky little guy, maybe we'll care about its well-being. You know, it seems like the more you know about something, the more you care about it. Definitely, yeah. So according to the IUCN red list, the population trend is declining, but they're still in the least concern category. Yay, good news. Yeah, so, um, so even though the Woodcock isn't in dire straits, it might be worth looking into why they're declining. So one possible factor uh, for their study decline is habitat loss uh, and habitat uh, degradation through exotic invasive species. So a preliminary study in Pennsylvania found that woodcock uh, actually avoided exotic invasive vegetation when selecting nest sites, um, particularly multiflora rose and tartarian honeysuckle. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) So why? uh,
0: That's all that's here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Especially here. Yeah. Yeah. But it's possibly because um, they leaf out earlier in the spring, uh, earlier than natives anyway. Yeah. um, And they might be blocking the view of potential predators around nest sites. Uh. So that that makes some sense. And they also found that nest success and habitat use decreased significantly with an increased uh, percentage of exotic invasive woody vegetation. Remember, they like that woody vegetation for nest sites and to really hang out during the day. And the obvious management suggestions in this case would be to include the removal and control of invasive shrubs. Yeah. Um, that's so, good everywhere. Right, yeah. Almost. So th- that's good everywhere, but specifically, it's it's probably going to help woodcock, especially, okay. you know, if you have a declining population, it's worth looking into. Sure. So. All right, so another paper suggested looking into lead poisoning as a factor that might be having an effect on the decline of woodcocks. Lead so, shot? Yeah, so well, while feeding... Um, Woodcock may be exposed to lead through soil ingestion, earthworm consumption, and accidental ingestion of the lead shot pellets. Uh. Yeah, so Woodcocks do have relatively high levels of lead in their system, and they can trace the source of that lead through measuring lead isotopes in Woodcock bones. Uh, One study found that 30% of the bones analyzed had lead concentrations above the biological threshold, but other studies kind of failed to find those similar results, and there's a lot of research that still needs to be done, including studies on, like, calcium, phosphorus, iron, zinc, and vitamin D levels in woodcock tissues, because those can affect or be affected by lead absorption. Okay. So why do we care about this? Uh, is it for the bird's sake? Uh, a little bit, <laughs> but probably it's more about us. Uh, the paper actually specifically says that we should focus on research efforts on game birds like the woodcock and morning doves that are still legally harvested using lead shot. Um, So they say such research would improve the understanding of linkages among species population trends, lead health risks, potential impact of continued lead shot use, as well as potential human health impacts from consumption of lead harvested birds. So to wrap up this episode, I thought I would conclude with a quote from Aldo Leopold that kind of ties into the hunting of these birds. The woodcock is a living refutation of the theory that the utility of a game bird is to serve as a target or to pose gracefully on a slice of toast. <laughs> no one would rather hunt woodcock in October than I, but since learning of the sky dance, I find myself calling one or two birds enough. I must be sure that, come April, there be no dearth of dancers in the sunset sky. <sighs> Uh, Aldo Leopold, man. I love him. That one is from a Sand County Almanac. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Page 34. Nice. All right, right, so do you want to go see if uh,
0: we can actually spot a woodcock? Yeah, let's go, because it's almost full dark. So if he was performing, it would be now. Yeah. Now, while we're walking over there, and it is pretty close, so we should make it no problem. Mm -hmm. You didn't mention why the eyes are so far set back on the head.
1: Yeah, you know, I said that the eyes like kind of face forward and upward while they're probing in the ground, but I didn't really expand on that at all.
0: Because it's been a while since I've taught and read about woodcock, but if I remember correctly, aren't their ears located in front of their eyes? Oh man, I did not look into that. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. So the reason that their eyes are set so far back is to make room for their ears. So when they're probing in the soil, their ears are actually closer to the soil so they can listen for earthworms better.
1: If that's true. (laughs) No,
0: (laughs) if that's true. This may be one of those things like when I thought that flying squirrels were the most numerous squirrel. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure. So we'll definitely look into that, folks, and put it into the episode notes.
1: Yeah, who knows? Maybe there is something more to this earthworm thing. But like I said, it could be true. We just, it's hard to make that claim without... You know the actual research (laughs) done on it
0: (laughs) all right so we are right now entering the arboretum area of beaver meadow and this is probably like the most park-like setting here at the the preserve there's about 400 acres here most of it is uh, upland and lowland forest they got a 40 acre beaver pond but as i said before this area is an area where lots of native trees are planted and signed so people can come and get to know our different native species
1: and we're actually walking right past the place where we band birds. That's right. During the summer, yeah.
0: So this is where we band birds because we have a lot of nice edge habitat surrounding the open area here. Mm-hmm. And we get lots of good warbler species, but mostly catbirds. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: but still, if uh, if you've ever wanted to hold a warbler in your hands, find a local bird banding station. Oh, it's yeah. It's
0: such a fun experience. It's a great place to volunteer, folks. Uh, just... See if you can find any local bird banding operations where you live. And it's a great way to get close to bird species that you normally don't see or you might not even know are in your neighborhood if you're not a birder.
1: Yeah, we should definitely do a bird banding episode one of these days. Yeah, definitely.
0: All right, so we are at the edge of the meadow.
1: I remember seeing him here last year. Or maybe like in this field or something? Yeah,
0: this is where they usually perform. So, I would be impressed if a bird is out now just because we do have snow coming down. Yeah, it's kind there's of There's a breeze, it's cold, there's little clouds of snow being blown up across the uh, the meadow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I think we're not gonna see anything tonight. <laughs>
0: All right, folks, well, this is going to be an episode where we don't find our target species. <laughs> that happens, yeah. <laughs> but I loved talking about the woodcock, and it was kind of nice to get back to a species-specific episode. It's been a while for us.
1: Yeah, and we specifically don't do those so much because we think it's more interesting to talk, tackle, like, a topic rather than a species, yeah. you know. But but still, I, we're, I'm glad we're doing this because by the time this episode comes out, so it's it's March 31st right now, by the time it comes out, hopefully you guys can hear it and then maybe go to a local nature center and maybe find a woodcock walk somewhere
0: or you know or maybe just go explore it for yourself go to a nice open area hopefully the wetter the better but yeah well not not too wet i should say but
1: yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) unless you get some gun leaf boots (laughs) (laughs) there you go nice (laughs) all right so we hope you enjoyed the episode so first and foremost wait oh (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, it's okay. Before you get into the patrons, there's a couple of things I need to mention. Okay. Okay? <laughs> there's a couple of people we need to thank. Okay, yeah. All right. So in the last episode, we mentioned uh, two listeners that had contacted us uh, via email, via comments on the website. The first one was an email someone sent to us talking about how they had been paying attention to the bird sounds they were hearing. Oh, yeah. We didn't mention that person's name. We didn't bring it with us. But oh. we wanted to thank Kieran, for taking the time to do that and to share the list of 30 species with us. And we also have to do apologize because we assumed Kieran was a girl.
1: Oh, I still thought that for some reason.
0: (laughs) Well, when I did look it up, uh, it is uh, a name that is uh, typically a male.
1: Okay, okay. So... uh,
0: We're not sure, but I'm I'm thinking it's a male. So sorry (laughs) about that, that Kieran. Not
1: that it matters in 2019, Bill.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying it matters beyond that we want to be accurate. Sure, right. (laughs) (laughs) And then I also wanted to thank Jeff Kozma. He was the one that sent us the updated listing of the American Ornithologist Union's listing of the Downey and Harry Woodpeckers because we were a little unclear on what the current status was in our Downey-Harry game episode. So thank you for that, Jeff. Thank you for taking the time to write in.
1: Yeah, thank you, guys.
0: All right. Those are the two things I needed to do.
1: All right. So second and second most, we would (laughs) like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Roger Shaw. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we give a special thanks to our top patrons. So thank you, Rob. We named the Dog Indy. Dean, Christina, Gavin, Pollywog, Jacqueline, Sean, Jessica, and especially Ken, Diane, Morgan, Elizabeth, Daniel, Susan, Rachel, Orange Julian, and Alyssa. Thank you guys so much.
0: Wow, it's so touching to hear that long list. Thanks, folks. It means the world to us.
1: Yeah. And we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers on iTunes. So thank you, Chase's Bears and Intermediatic. Keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. We also want to thank Always Wandering Art uh, for their beautiful uh, thumbnail. As always, links to their website and Etsy page will be in the episode notes. We also want to give a shout out to the Corner Pollinator Garden for mentioning us in their Addressing Common Concerns section on their website. Um, They actually link to both of our tick episodes. Uh, for the readers to get more information about ticks and tick-borne illnesses. Great. So a link to the Corner Pollinator Garden will be in the episode notes. Also, uh, you could go check out those tick episodes if you haven't <laughs> already. They're pretty good, I think.
0: And it's starting to get to be tick season.
1: Yeah. So uh, as we said before, please go check out gumleafusa.com. Uh, we have links in the episode notes and on our website. If you have any questions of your own, uh, if you have any comments or episode suggestions, send us an email at, at gmail.com. Visit us on Instagram at Field Guides Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Field Guides Pod. Like and follow us on Facebook and visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com.
0: All right, and I did want to jump in and remind people that coming up very soon, uh, right now we're recording this episode in at the end of March 2019, but coming up at the end of May. 2019, is the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. So we've mentioned this on the podcast before. Steve and I are going to be there this year, uh, and we're going to be leading a hike as we did last year. I don't know if we're going to be recording it. We may, Mm. but... Uh, you can go to AlleghenyNaturePilgrimage.com. And if you don't know what the Nature Pilgrimage is, from early morning to late at night, you can choose from dozens of small group programs. Uh, you might be sitting and talking or taking a hike. Uh, so Some programs are designed to last for an hour and a half, but there are also field trips that might last up to four hours. In the evening, you can attend presentations under the big tent. And there's also other evening programs as well. I know one of our favorites is the Bugs by Nightlight mm, that our friend yeah. Wayne Gall does. And the topics there include trees, flowers, ferns, insects, birds, salamanders, tracks, mammals, geology, astronomy, and more. Uh, you might also find a class in things like yoga, paper making, photography, uh, and it's great for any age and any skill level. They have programs for kids. Um, for adults i believe there's even an x-rated nature walk for adults only (laughs) i don't think it's x-rated is it they refer to that in you know
1: oh the topless hike
0: (laughs) (laughs) steve you can lead that one (laughs) yeah yeah i'll get my nudist friends together (laughs) so again that's alleghenynaturepilgrimage.com we'd love to see you there and it's a chance for you to join me and steve on a hike
1: yeah hope to see you guys there So if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides or through our PayPal donate button on our website. But if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people.
0: And don't forget, we do have episode transcripts available on our website. Thank you to listener Joe Stormer for making those possible.
1: Yeah, thanks, Joe.
0: And parents, don't forget to let your kids get outside. Let them get muddy. Let them get dirty. Flip over rocks and logs. Let them have a good time out in the woods.
1: All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.
0: See you next month.